Thanks, Matt. Hey, good morning, everybody. If I've never met you, my name is Luke, and I feel very at home here today. I have been living in Cape Town in the wonderful suburb of Fishhook for the last 10 years. But uh, for the first 30 years of my life, I lived in East London. I grew up in uh, all over Nahoon, Beacon Bay, Vincent. We moved around quite a lot as a family. But uh, this is my neighborhood. And uh, I've been in this property many times. I was a youth pastor at Sterling Presbyterian Church for many years as well. So um, yesterday afternoon is a real treat. Uh, staying with Mark and Anita, we got to take a walk uh, where the school, uh, uh, where I went to primary school. And I got to walk around in the fields and remember, oh, that's where I tripped when I'd broken my leg. And that's why I did this. And that's why I did this. It was a real just special time. I'm one of the pastors at Common Ground South Penn. And we as a church bring our greetings and send our greetings to you. And uh, I have the privilege of speaking about Jesus and um, same-sex attraction, Jesus and homosexuality today. Um, hey, I, I'm aware. I'm a straight white male. That's who I am. That's all I've got, right? And um, I'm a pastor. I'm not a professor. But I'm trusting that my pastor's heart today would be able to help us navigate this very confusing moment in our history. I'm hopeful today that we're going to be equipping us as Christ followers in the church for how, how do we respond? How do we navigate this moment? I'm hopeful too that there'd be some here today perhaps who Christ followers who have same-sex attraction in terms of your orientation as well, and you're grappling with what does it look like to follow Jesus from this place that I find myself in as well. I want to start by saying that I'm relying on minds that are far cleverer than me. I want to give a lot of credit to a guy named John Tyson out of New York City, in particular for this talk. This talk. Nancy Piercy wrote a phenomenal book called Love Thy Body. Moms and dads, read it. Teenagers, read it. It is phenomenal, and uh, it will help you navigate so many things that our culture is busy wrestling with. John Mark Homer, as well as Sam Albury, same-sex attracted pastor, um, now in the U.S., originally from the U.K., phenomenal human being, um, living a celibate life and just love his work. And then Rebecca McLaughlin as well. We read very widely in preparing this series. I want to say, too, that I'm speaking to the church today. I'm not, trying to come up, I'm not trying to take a morality and a code of living and put that onto our city. Uh, if you're here and you're not a Christ follower and you're listening in, hey, this is a great opportunity to get a window into what we believe and why we believe it as a church. But my message today is not primarily addressing our city as much as it's trying to help us as a church understand what does the Bible talk and say around this thing. How are we, how did we get to where we are currently as a culture? And how do we pastor people who are walking through this as well? I'm mindful too that the language around this topic is loaded. The language can be offensive. Um, I'm going to avoid language I think is unhelpful. I'm not going to use the, the language affirming or non-affirming. I think it frames the conversation in a way that's quite off sides. Uh, I'm going to use the language today of the progressive view and the historical view. I'm going to try and be as charitable as I can and as fair as I can as what we're going to do in the second part of this talk in the middle is we're going to look at the progressive view and we're going to look at the historical view in light of the five Bible texts that really speak about this. I want to represent both arguments and then show you why we land in the historical position as well. But at times I may use words homosexual, gay, same-sex attracted, that may be offensive to some of us. I really, I want to say on the front end, I'm deeply sorry. I don't mean to be offensive to anyone, but this is all the language I've got. And, um, and as a pastor, I want to try and help us navigate this moment. And so there are three parts to this talk. Number one, how did we get here as a culture and as a, as a society? How did we come to be here? 
It's probably the shortest part of the talk. Number two, what does the Bible say? And what is the, the progressive view? And what is the historical position on this as well? And then number three, pastoral implications for those who are same-sex attracted. Really, I want to answer some FAQs, some frequently asked questions as best I can. Section number two is going to be, for many, the least interesting and most boring. Uh, I'm putting that on the front end to you. I hope you took your vitamins this morning and uh, you got that extra dose of caffeine. We'll take the five key biblical texts that speak about the subject and represent the two different perspectives. It's going to be very technical, but it's very important for us as Christ followers because I don't just want you uh, catching an idea as much as we want to understand what do the scriptures teach. Okay, so that's what we're trying to do here. I'm not here to tell you what I think as much as I want to unpack the Bible. Lastly, I want to, be, I want to say I'm speaking primarily to Christians. I'm not talking about rules for society. I want to talk about those and to, to those who are wanting to follow Jesus with their lives, who want to honor, them, honor Him with their bodies. If you're here and you're not a Christ follower, this message is aimed primarily at the church. But feel free to listen in to understand why we believe what we believe and what we believe as well in our faith. So as such, I'm going to do something a little bit interesting today. Twice today in my message, I want to start by reading article number one of the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. Now, the first time I'm going to read it out loud, and I'm hoping that the final thing we do in my message today is we get to read it together as Christ followers. Is that okay? The Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. These are statements of Christian belief that were created to help the church universal know what is true. And this is article number one of 130 of these articles of belief. I want to read it to us here. Here's the first question. What is my only comfort in life and in death? And here's the answer. That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sins with His precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ by His Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. This is the context of the conversation. Beautiful, eh? To think there's another 129 other articles of that catechism to go home and read tonight. Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, hold me back. Okay, as I said, it's going to be long. I'm going to stretch us. But sometimes it's better to drive to Port Elizabeth via Bloemfontein so that we don't lose everybody along the way, Right? We're going to go the long way around. My first point today, and the shortest one, is asking and answering the question, how did we get here as a society to the point where we're currently at right now? And I want to say to you, there has been a tremendous cultural shift around the issue of homosexuality, around the legalization of, of, uh, of same-sex um, uh, sexual practices in our society. This has happened incredibly fast. In fact, in 2008, 15 years ago, Barack Obama was head of the Democratic Party of the U.S. And he ran in his political campaign 15 years ago in the more liberal side of the American um, political system against same-sex marriages. That's not a long time ago. I mean, it's quite, you think about that. It's, it's a shocking thought, actually. It, it's very quick how this has happened. 
This revolution has happened at an incredible speed, and it's taken place not just very fast, but it's taken place through the medium of war. The language, the metaphors, the, the, the violent language, the hatred towards those in other camps is, is I mean, it's, it's undeniable. The change has happened so fast, and it's happened in such polarizing ways that the sexual revolution has been experienced in a warlike power struggle. One sociologist said this, everything is about sex except sex, which is about power. And so I want to begin by taking a look at right now, this moment that you and I are in in 2023, how did we get here? And I'm going to look, this first section is not a moral, um, it's not a moral assessment. I'm not talking about a religious perspective. I'm not making a case of right and wrong, anything like that just yet. I just want to look at a society to say, how did we get to this place we find ourselves in right now? And I want to look on the one side at the kind of the more, the more liberal progressive side. And then I want to look on the other side in a second at the more conservative side as well. And so there are those in our society over the last 60 or so years for whom the issue of the legalization and the rights of same-sex attracted uh, people, homosexual people and marriage, etc. This is an issue of justice, and it needs to be changed. That's on the one side. And, uh, and, and I want to talk about how we came to be here from that side. In February 1988, there was a meeting of 175 of the leading gay activists that was convened. They met to establish a mission, a mission that the gay movement would rally around. And it was a shift in strategy uh, around propaganda and around cultural engagement. Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen put together the strategy in a book. The book is called After the Ball. You can see it over there. Um, it, How America Will Conquer Fear and Hatred of the Gays in the 90s. You can try and buy this book. It's out of print. It's $950 on Amazon at the moment. Now, in this book, they outlined a three-pronged strategy. Go and check. You can check. This is all legitimate. You can go and find out. In this book, you, you can see there was a three-pronged strategy. Number one, to desensitize the American people to gay relationships. Number two, to jam opposition to gay relationships. And number three, to convert popular opinion to normalcy and public acceptance. It was an intentional, strategic effort to change the way people think. And it worked. Much of what our culture believes is not a logical progression. It is not a social evolution. Rather, and I'm quoting now from, from the book, a cleverly manufactured campaign of propaganda by world-class PR agents. Part one of the book, desensitize the American population to gay relationships. And I quote, we need a conscious flood of gay-related advertising presented in the least offensive way possible. If straights can't shut off the shower they may at least get used to being wet. The main thing is to talk about gayness until the issue becomes thoroughly tiresome. Seek, to, seek desensitization and nothing more. If you, can't, if you can get straights to think homosexuality is just another thing, meriting no more than a shrug of the shoulders, sol, soldier, shoulders, 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 then your battle for legal rights is virtually won. I know the term homosexual uh, is offensive to some. I apologize. Uh, it, it, this is quoting from a book that was written in the 90s. Part number two in the book, to jam those who oppose our movement. Violently, quoting, and by any means necessary, block any dissent against our movement. Tim Gill, who's an incredibly wealthy financial backer of the movement, 
contributed massive sums of money to fight for gay liberty, is quoted in an article by Rolling Stone as saying, anyone who opposes us must be punished. We will punish the wicked. What is happening here is the establishment of a new righteousness, a new moral superiority. And any opposition is to be punished and penalized and excluded from participation in the public sphere. Part three, convert popular opinion to normalcy and public acceptance. Quoting again from the book, lobbying education, media, law, art, entertainment, family business, therapy, all came under the weight of the campaign, the war on normalcy. The conversion of the average American's emotions, mind, and will through a planned psychological attack in the form of propaganda fed to the nation via the media is our strategy. Quote, Next quote, the public should be persuaded gays are victims of circumstance, that they no more choose their sexual orientation than their height. For all practical purposes, gays should be considered to have been born gay, even, through, even though sexual orientation for most humans seems to be a product of complex interaction between innate predispositions and environmental factors during childhood and early, early adolescence. To suggest in public that homosexuality might be chosen is to open the can of worms labeled moral choice and sin and to give the religious right a stick to beat us with. You can see the, the hostility and the warlike language here. First you've, got to get in the foot in, first, you've got to get a foot in the door by being as similar as possible and then and only then with one little difference, orientation, finally accepted, you can then start dragging in your peculiarities one by one. You hammer in the wedge, narrow and fast, as the saying goes. Allow the camel's nose beneath the tent, and the whole body will follow soon. A cultural vision of being gay is normal. Therefore, every behavior and practice of any sexual minority must be accepted as normal too. Why are we looking at this? Because I want us to see that where we, where we are right now, it didn't just happen. It wasn't just a natural progression, as many will say. But where we are now is the result of a strategic campaign led by gay activists in every sector of society designed to get us to the point where we are today. Now, remember, I'm not trying to say this is right or wrong as much as I'm just trying to help us see how we got to this place. Andrew Sullivan, himself a gay man, somewhat more conservative uh, as a gay man as well, wrote an article uh, called Undoing Our Good Work, in which he asked the question, at what point do we stop and acknowledge that we won? How much further do we need to push this? The bottom line is, where we are now is in some way shaped by an incredibly effective campaign to transform our society. So if you're feeling a little bit like, wow, this happened really fast. And, and this is a very contested, almost violent, warlike space. You can understand now why you feel that way. But it wasn't just on the one side. At the same time, there was the more conservative uh, religious right who hit back in equally violent, in equally warlike ways. We can look at the other side of the culture war. Seeing this happen, the religious right decided we have to now hit back. And we need to do so in, with intentionality as well. So, so, Dr. so Jerry Falwell Sr. founded what is called in America the Moral Majority. And the vision of the moral majority was for a conservative agenda for society, a culture based on God's word. Essentially, they were trying to build a theocracy in the country of the U.S. 
responding to what they saw as immorality invading the righteousness of the nation. Some of the issues which the moral majority stood for were this. The promotion of the traditional family life. This vision of the traditional family. Opposition to media outlets that promoted views that were anti-traditional family. Opposition to state recognition or acceptance of homosexual acts. The prohibition of abortion in the cases of, even in cases of incest, rape, pregnancy, or where the life of the mother was at stake. Support for Christian prayer in schools and the marketing to Jews and other non-Christians for conversion to conservative Christianity. The other side of the cultural war, quoting from the moral majority, AIDS is not just punishment for homosexuals, it's God's punishment for a society that tolerates homosexuals. We've got egg on our face as well here, cross followers. The idea that religion and politics don't mix was invented by the devil, devil to keep Christians from running their own country. Someone must, someone must not be afraid to say moral perversion is wrong. If we do not act now, homosexuals will own America. And if you and I do not speak up now, this homosexual steamroller will literally crush all decent men, women, and children who get in the way. The nation will pay a terrible price. Can you see the intensity and the warlike nature of the rhetoric from both sides? Also said by the moral majority, Tinky Winky is gay. True story. Sorry, if you're older, you may not know what that is all about, but there's the Teddy Tubbies. I want us to see that the church responded to this with judgmentalism of the wider culture and a massive sense of superiority, which did not help us, which is exactly what we don't see in the New Testament. When Paul engages with the city and the, and the culture in which he's in, he does so with such an intelligence and such a wisdom and such a generosity. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 12, Paul speaking to the church in Corinth, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? As Christians, we don't get to put our morality onto a secular society and judge people. Judging should happen within the church as we hold one another accountable to God's high standards. And the religious right poured out judgment on the secular society. I remember pictures of, this, of these billboards that went up as churches protesting. And, and billboards like, God hates gays. God hates homosexuals and other derogatory terms. And as a result, many people walked away from the faith. Many people walked away from Jesus. Many people walked away from the church. And the result of this cultural war is confusion, embarrassment, and honestly, exhaustion. Culture wars produce casualties. And this has happened so fast, it's been so hostile, that many in the wake of the shift are filled with shrapnel from this battle that's been happening in our culture. And so, if you're sitting here feeling a mix around these things, you can understand why that is the case. Section number one. Now, section number two, we're going to look at what does the Bible say about it. We understood Wow, it's been messy in how we got here. No wonder we feel so confused. No, man, no wonder we feel uh, so insecure about what we're to believe and how we're to respond. And it's so blurry. Section number two, I want to look at what the Bible says. Now, here's, here's the thing. If you, if you stay for the whole of section, you can, you can leave now. But if you stay for section two, you have to stay for section three. Okay. That, that's the deal. Okay. 
This is the trickiest, but we're going to get through. With such hostility that's happened in this conversation, you can understand how when people come to the Bible, we don't come to the Scriptures uh, neutrally, right? People come to the Scriptures having lived through these all sorts of subjective, very hostile experiences. We come to the Scriptures with a measure of bias, all of us, with wounds and agendas. And so we can open the Bible with all, such, all sorts of presuppositions. Because there's so much damage and so much pain, a lot of people might even say, I don't even care what the Bible says. I've just seen that stuff, and I know that I don't want to be a part of that at all. It's tempting to start off when it comes to the Scriptures with our individual experiences or perhaps even the experience of a same-sex attracted or gay friend that we have and then reason from our experience to what we think is a natural and loving response. And then what we do is we critique and we, we evaluate the church and, and we import that experience into how we interpret the scriptures. And often this is done with a heart of love. It's done with a heart of care for wounded people. And I really do get that. But you have to see as Christ followers, the challenge of, of doing faith this way is that it's incredibly subjective. It's not timeless. It's not eternal. It's not historical. It's based on one particular generation of human beings alive right now on the planet with its own cultural moment. And it assumes arrogantly that everything that's gone on before is wrong and inferior. So how do we do this? Well, as a church and a society, we are committed not to starting with our subjective experience and working back to the scriptures, but we are those who are committed to elevating the Scriptures and asking first, what do the Scriptures teach? How has this worked itself out in church history, 2,000 years of church history? Then we bring reason to this, and then we bring our own experiences as well. However, we must do so mindful of the cultural moment which we find ourselves in. So I'm hoping today to try and thread the needle where we honor the truth of the Scriptures, but in a way that both helps us as human beings be more loving as well in our culture. There are five texts in the Bible that speak about homosexual or same-sex or gay-sex sexual practices. We're going to read them all. We're going to articulate first the progressive view and then why we hold to the historical view. I want to just make a clear distinction here. Notice today I'm talking about gay sexual practices I'm not talking as much about same-sex attraction when it comes to these Bible texts. Just, I'm going to slow down, make sure we all understand the, dis the distinction here. There is a difference between same-sex attraction and gay sexual practices. There are many who are same-sex attracted who do not live gay sexual lifestyles. These texts don't speak about same-sex attraction as much as they speak about gay sexual practices. You got your head around the distinction there? So let's take a look. First one, easy one. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 to 25. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 to 25. This passage is about human sexuality. And, 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 and you'll see the way the story, the way in which it's told, it focuses in on complementary pairings. Look closely in particular at where the story hones in when it comes to Adam, that, that they can't find a suitable partner for Adam. Look, look closely um, Adam cannot find his complementary pair in nature, and so God creates for him one and brings her to him. Let's read together, Genesis 2, 18. And then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. 
I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground of the Lord, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, or the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed its place up with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, now at least this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be, co- she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not Ashamed. Now, this is not a science book when we read Genesis. We're not reading science, but it is a book that is intended to be authoritative for how we're to live as human beings. Let's look first at the progressive view when it comes to same-sex practices here. The progressive view says that what Adam needed was not necessarily a woman. He needed another human partner. It was, I mean, but just be created, was anyone who was not an animal was, was, would, would have been adequate. In other words, it was Eve's humanity and not Eve's gender that made her suitable to Adam. The logic goes, though, that if Adam was same-sex attracted, it wouldn't have been Eve that God had brought, but it would have been another man that he would have been, uh, been able to live out his relationship with. Make sense? The historical view to that one. Well, the question is, is Eve's humanness all that makes her qualified to be a suitable helper for him? And the answer is no. This passage makes it clear, clear that her femaleness plays a key role as well. The Hebrew word, you heard it in how I read it then, underlined it, helper fit, helper fit. It's one word in the Hebrew here. The Hebrew word is konegdo. It's a compound word made up of two words in English, ke and neg. Ke meaning like. Neg meaning opposite or against. So the word here is like opposite, like opposite against here. And which, which is why Eve is the perfect partner for Adam. It, if it was just her humanness, then ke or like would have been enough. It would have been a helper like him. I will make a helper like him. But we don't have the word ke, we have the word konegdo, which is not just like him. It's like opposite or like against. It was not just Eve's humanness that made her fit for Adam, but it was the fact that, that he was male and she was female. She was like him, but also opposite him as well. And this passage contains God's basic design for marriage as well. It's quoted again and again in the scriptures. It's quoted by Jesus himself. There are three things that are necessary for a Christian marriage, that both partners need to be human, that both partners need to come from different families, and that both partners need to display sexual difference and otherness, male and female. It's this pattern of complementarity that is fundamental to God's design for flourishing. We see it. We see this complementary pairs. There's God in this creation. There's light. There's dark. There's earth. There's heavens. There's day. There's night. There's sun. There's moon. There's humans. There's animals. And finally, the climax of all of these complementary pairings are male and female. They are like each other, but they're also opposite each other. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, God made them in our image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, 
he created them. This vision of Christian sexuality is a display of differences interacting with each other to reflect the glory of God. The climax of creation is this astonishing otherness. They are like each other, yet they are also opposite each other, man and woman. It's their sameness and their difference that create this complementarity, which is woven into God's design. Second text, five of these. Number two, and now we're going to get a little bit more serious. We're into Leviticus. Okay, when everyone says open, whenever any preacher says open your Bible to Leviticus, it's about to get serious, right? Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, and Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. Leviticus 18, 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, verse 13. I'm, I'm so mindful. If you're here, you're same-sex attracted. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm mindful of this language and just how difficult it is sometimes to listen to in our modern world. It really is. I get it. Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Let's unpack the context of this. The context of this is the children of Israel are coming out of years and years in slavery in Egypt. They are coming out of, uh, under the rule of Pharaoh. They're coming out of uh, having never had their own culture. And they've been under the oppressive culture of Egypt. And God is leading his people out of oppression into the promised land. He's leading them to be a different culture. He's leading them out of this oppressive culture into a culture which glorifies him with a culture with a different ethical vision of life that, that, that God wants to make these people holy as he is holy in such a way as they can display his holiness to the nations. Holiness is the key theme of the book of Leviticus. It's mentioned 87 times in this book. The meaning of holiness is to be separated from, to, to be consecrated, to be distinct. Israel is to be a holy people with holy clothes in a holy land, using holy utensils and objects, celebrating holy days, living out a holy law so that there can be a kingdom of holy priests um, and a holy nation displaying God's will to the nations. Make sense? You see the theme. It's holiness. It's all over. And then in chapter 17 of Leviticus onwards is the series of chapters which we call the holiness code. And it details how God's people will live as holy people, in contrast to the nations around them. The heart of this is Leviticus 19.2, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Okay, got the context. The progressive view has got three arguments for why these two verses in Leviticus no longer apply today. And they go like this. Number one, Old Testament passages no longer matter for us around ethics and around morality. Jesus has come. We're no longer under the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. So these passages no longer apply. The second one is the problem with these passages is that they are referring to men being treated like women. In a patriarchal society, this is the feminization of men, and it is associated with shame, and that is what is being condemned in Leviticus here. And the third one is that this is condemning exploitative, idolatrous sex, not loving, monogamous relationships. Okay, the historical view. Just because we're under the new covenant, it doesn't mean we throw out the Old Testament. Jesus, Paul, as well as other New Testament writers, all seem to have a high regard for the Old Testament. There are parts like mixed cloth and eating pork and eating shellfish, plowing fields at certain times of the year. That's true. They no longer apply to us. 
but not all law is the same. Old Testament law can be understood in three categories. The moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. I hope you took your vitamins this morning, hey? Hey, I, I, just, just stay engaged. The moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law, right? The moral law is true for all people at all times and all places because it reflects God's will and God's nature, moral law. Number two, ceremonial law. This was regarding the sacrificial system, which was part of the old covenant before the coming of Christ. And then the civil law, this dealt with, these were laws as a theocracy, which Israel was a theocracy in society, and these were laws for them as a nation. Leviticus 18 to 20 form part of what is called the moral law. In fact, it's a solid block of teaching, much like the Sermon on the Mount. The, these are moral instructions that speak about, and I'm just going to list them, incest, adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, theft, lying, taking the Lord's name in vain, oppressing your neighbor, cursing the deaf, showing partiality in a court of law, slander, hating your brother, making your daughter a prostitute, turning to witches, and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. So it's a, it's a, mix, it's a mixed bag. The New Testament writers quote these moral laws. In fact, Jesus referred to Leviticus 19 verse 18, sandwiched in between these two scriptures in Leviticus, more than any other verses in the Old Testament. Both Peter and Paul quoted from Leviticus as part of their summons to holiness. Now, it's true that we are no longer living in a theocracy. We're not trying to turn South Africa into another version of Israel, as many people do on social media. Because we are no longer under the ceremonial system of the old covenant either, there are parts of the Old Testament law that don't apply to us because we're no longer under the sacrificial system. However, the moral law is timeless and true and it makes its way through. Understand the first part of this objection. The other two parts of this objection, number two and number three, the second one, which is the, which is the view that these, these, these verses are addressing the feminization of men, um, and, and the second one, that um, these, are, these are exploitative sexual acts, not uh, consensual loving ones here that are being addressed. Well, there's two ways that doesn't hold up here. Unlike other creation accounts, the book of Genesis has a high view equal of men and women. The creation account of Genesis that we just read puts men and women on equal footing. Nor was the woman's part in sexuality lower than male. So to say, or the, the man's part. So to say there's something wrong with turning men into, into women in sexuality because we're doing this does not hold in a sexual ethic that puts these two equal. The second thing is the language of this passage is not coercive, but it is the language of mutuality. Here, both parties are condemned as equal, willing participants, which is different than the other parts of, of, of the Old Testament law where, where men prey upon women, and in that situation, the woman is not punished. She goes free, and the man who preys upon her, uh, he, he, he is, he is uh, bearing guilt as well. So the point here is God is clearly prohibiting sexual relations between two people of the same sex because it violates, in this context, his holiness and his vision for humanity. It's two down, three to go. We're doing all right. 
Okay, let's go. Romans chapter 1, 24 to 27. Now we're crossing the Old Testament into the New Testament. Paul is writing to the church in Rome. Now, I mean, he's actually building a case for why the church should send him to Spain. But he starts right here, Romans chapter 1 through to Romans chapter 3. And Paul is launching an argument from Romans 1, 18 through to the end of chapter 3. And the argument is this. Everyone needs Jesus. Everyone is guilty of sin. And he starts off by listing all the sin of the Gentiles. And then he lists all the sin of the Jews. And, and the big conclusion he ties around all of these in these first three chapters is, see, everyone is guilty. We all need Jesus. The first part, Romans 1, 18 to 32, he looks at the sins of the Gentiles. The second part, chapter 2, verse 1 to 29, he's looking at the sins of the Jews. And he's saying, you see, you guys are just as wicked. You need Jesus too. So whether you're a Gentile and that's your sin, whether you're a Jew and this is your sin, whether it's porn, whether it's pride, we all need the cross. The whole point is to point to our need for Jesus' grace. There's three movements that you'll notice as we read. I'm just trying to set up the passage here. There's three movements we'll see that Paul is unpacking. We are reading on the side of the Gentile sinfulness now, Romans chapter 1. The first thing you'll see is the valuing of creation, uh, elevating creation, and reducing the creator. The second thing is the substitution of God for the priority of self. That's Carl so beautifully spoke last night about the curved in. Roman, uh, Martin Luther's language, in our souls are in curvitas. We are called it, curved in on ourselves. The priority of self. And the third one, when you do that, when you elevate creation, when you reduce God and when you elevate yourself, what is unnatural becomes natural. You'll see this in what he says. Romans 1, 24 to 27. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and their men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. There are two questions we're looking at we need to understand in the context of the progressive and the historical view here. What, what's the desire that's driving this kind of sexual uh, practice? Is it natural or is it unnatural? And the second one is the nature of these sexual relationships. Are they coercive? Are they, are they, um, is, is there a power dynamic at play here that's being addressed? And, and the first view is the progressive view. We, we always start with that one. Although it looks like Paul is anti-same-sex relationships, actually that's not what he's saying. And there's two reasons why it, the progressive view holds this way. Number one, this is not about a monogamous homosexual sexual practices as much as it's about heterosexual excess heterosexual excess. In other words, these people had sexual ap appetites that had so grown out of control that although they were heterosexual in their orientation and desire, they, they just needed something more. They needed craving more. You see, it's lust gone wild is, is the argument here, not homosexuality that is being addressed, but heterosexual people in orientation who had so spilled over in their lust that they had strayed into homosexual practices. It was sexuality that was so charged that they had gone against what was natural to them. 
In other words, it's unnatural for heterosexuals to pursue homosexual sexual practices, but not for homosexuals to pursue homosexual sexual practices. I'm, I apologize, the language can be offensive. I really do apologize. The second one, the second objection to this is the kind of sex that is happening here, that it is exploitative by nature. This is masters and slaves. This is prostitutes and callboys. It's this weird power dynamic that's at play. It's coercive. But what Paul is not addressing here is loving, committed relationships. This is not against same-sex love, but against the abuse of power and the commodification of people. Make sense? The historical view. I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to be as um, biased and... Um, in my tone as well, but I, I just don't hear like a carelessness in my heart about this. The historical view is the sin that Paul is addressing is against nature, not according to a person's orientation, but nature as defined in Genesis. This is not heterosexual excess, but it is sexual practices going against what Paul deems to be nature in terms of Genesis. It's not living and applying the design that we get from Genesis. The passage is full of echoes that go back to Genesis 1, Genesis chapter 2, for God's design. We see mention of the creator of the world, creator and creation, male and female, both distinguished by design. It seems that Paul is clearly saying that these practices, it's not the excesses, but it's that they go against God's design back from Genesis. The second thing we see here is the emphasis in verse 25 on the word exchange. We can jump back a slide there maybe. The emphasis on the word exchange makes it clear that Paul is thinking of homosexuality in general and not just the kind of bad homosexuality. The issue, uh, the issue is not just man-boy relationships. He addresses women here too. There is no record in the ancient world of adult youth sexual uh, practices or intimacy among women, which is condemned in this passage. It did exist at the time among men. This was very much part of the ancient culture of the day where rich, wealthy men preyed upon young boys. It's a system called pederasty. This is true, and it happened. However, it did not exist for women. So when Paul ties these two together, he, he can't be addressing just the one. It seems to be both these things. Paul's critique of male and female same-sex relationship is not tied then to a power dynamic, but it's because it violates God's design. It also says here that those involved we're committing acts with one another. It speaks of mutuality. It speaks of consensual sexual relationships. The bottom line is clear. This text, for this text, gender is the issue and not orientation, not domination, and not exploitation. Two more to go, guys. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 to 11, and 1 Timothy 1, verse 8 to 11. 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such, beautiful verse, and such were some of you. You've got to understand who the early church was made up of here. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Timothy 1, now we know uh, that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And understanding this, the, uh, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, 
for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, ever told a lie? Perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The, the context here is Paul is writing to the church, the church in Corinth and Timothy, the church in Ephesus. The word that is translated here, men who have sex with men or men who practice homosexuality, it's a difficult word to translate because it doesn't exist anywhere else in ancient literature. It, 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 is, it is a combined word, which we see only in these two verses in ancient lit literature. It's two words. The one word used there is malakoi in the Greek, the other one is arsenokoitai, okay? Malakoi, directly translated into English, means soft. Arsenokoitai means betters of men, okay? In the progressive view, the language is unclear. Therefore, we cannot be sure what is being addressed here. It is, is it committed same-sex monogamous relationships like we see today? Or is it exploitative sexual relationships? We can't be sure that Paul is condemning the same thing that we see in modern society today. Therefore, he's probably speaking about exploitative relationships. This is probably call boys and prostitutes. Some scholars say the Malakoi were the call boys, who are boys who sell themselves to older men, who, uh, and the Arsenokoitai are the men who hire out the Malakoi. Others say 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 6 verse 9 is referring to pederasty, which is men taking advantage of teenage boys in the Greco-Roman culture, which, as I said, was prolific in that day. In other words, the language is unclear, unclear, therefore it can't refer to what we now experience and see today in our society as monogamous, loving, same-sex, consensual relationships. The historical view, the language is not unclear. The language is compellingly and clearly taken from the Old Testament. In fact, the Greek translation of the two scriptures we read earlier in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 is what Paul would have used. Remember, Paul would have used a Greek translation of the Hebrew text. When you look at the words from Leviticus 18, the, the, the Hebrew words translated into Greek are this, meta, arsenos, and then koitan. The word we get here, arsenos, koitan. Paul is a Jewish scholar drawing from the Greek words of the Hebrew Old Testament in Leviticus. And he has built a compound word from these Greek, Greek translated Hebrew words in Leviticus, arsenos koitan, and he's coined himself a new phrase, arseno koitai. Tracking with me? Additionally, it was only, if it was only power relationships, why not say that? Because there were many words in play in both Greek, Christian, Jewish, and pagan culture that spoke specifically to that practice and referred to pederasty. Paul chose deliberately not to use them, but used this word from the, from the Hebrew Old Testament, translated into Greek, and included it in his letter because he emphatically wanted to explain something here. Malakoi refers, refers to men who receive sex from men, and arsenokoita refers to men who have sex with men. Paul, Paul is simply saying this is not appropriate for the people of God. Hey, I'm, I'm, again, I'm going to stop again. I know this language is in our cultural moment, as I say these words, there's a part of me that it's scratchy. I get it, and I'm sure the same is for you. These are technical words, but many of these words touch on the hearts of real people. And so let's, yeah, please hear in me this pastoral compassion and heart here. 
whilst I'm trying to honor the technical uh, scriptures in front of us. The last one, and this is an easy one. It's downhill now. Matthew chapter 19, verse uh, 3 to verse 12. This text primarily is about divorce and marriage, but it's helpful to understand what is the framework that Jesus uses? What is the worldview? Uh, Kyle and Ian's beautiful talk last night. What is the worldview that is informing how Jesus answers this question around sexuality, in particular um, marriage and divorce here? You'll see here that Jesus brings into this, how he answers this question, this worldview which comes through in this passage. And the Pharisees came to Jesus and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, have you not read, look at how Jesus relates to the scriptures, that he who created them from the beginning, he refers back to design in Genesis, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And God said to them, why then did Moses, sorry, and they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said, because you, of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, Jesus refers back, it was not so. And I, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus is trying to protect the interests of women in that culture. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive this. I want us to see the way Jesus seems to refer back in, in grappling with the subject of divorce. Jesus affirms design and, and what we taught around marriage coming from Genesis. For Jesus, marriage is, and we see in this passage, a lifelong union, which is blessed by God between a man and a woman, and it has been this way from the beginning. Jesus defines marriage as male and female. Okay, well done. If, if I could give, throw everybody sweets and coffee and whatever right now, I would. Section one, how do we get here? Section two, what do the scriptures believe? What is the progressive view? Why do we hold to the historical view? I can see now the merit of that. It's a lot of content, but it's important for us as Christ followers to know why we believe what we, what we believe and understand what the scriptures teach. Now, where does this leave us? And in particular, I want to speak to those who, who are perhaps here today who are same-sex attracted. Maybe you know someone, maybe you love someone, maybe someone, a, a child, a, a parent, a friend who's same-sex attracted. And I want to answer the kind of key questions that many ask around this. First question, are people born gay? Are people born gay? The American Psychological Association, I'm quoting from there, says this, there is no consensus among scientists as to the exact reason some an, an individual develops heterosexual, gay, lesbian, or bisexual orientation. Much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, and no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think both nature and nurture play complex roles, and many people experience little or no sense of choice about their sexual orientation. It seems to me that the scientists and doctors and medical people are saying to us, we don't really know. 
Therefore, as Christ followers, we should treat this with com tremendous compassion. However, I would say, one thing I have to point out though, is even if it were a biological desire, just because someone experiences or feels something that is a biological disposition, it doesn't justify the desire as supremely correct. We all have inborn desires that we should not act upon, right? Some of them are incredibly strong, and the strength of the desire does not justify its righteousness. The second question, is orientation sinful? I don't think so. When your orientation is turned to lust, whether it is for men or for women, yes. James says, and James, in the book of James, we preached through James a while back as a church. James speaks about a desire that leads to sin. It, it needn't uh, lead to sin, but there is a time when it does. When the desire uh, is, is, is fed and is, is entertained for long enough, yes, it can become sin at a point. When we collaborate with it rather than choosing to follow Christ, whichever way your orientation is, this can be true for you. These questions get more complex as we go. The second one is can, or the third one, can people change their orientation? This is so complex. I'm nervous of making principles from a pulpit when we actually need to pastor people as individuals here. It's unwise to make general rules. Rules Certainly for some, there are those who would have called themselves exclusively same-sex attractive, and yet they have been able to marry, they have been able to, to, to marry members of the opposite sex, to have children, and to live fulfilling lives. But certainly for others, this is not the case as well. There are many Christians who are same-sex attracted who choose to live celibate lives in following Jesus. I've learned so much from a man named Sam Albury who is exactly this. He is a same-sex attracted man who has chosen to live a celibate life. He is a pastor in a phenomenal, thriving local church in America. If he wanted to move to Fishhook and I had the money, I would hire him and bring him on staff in my church at the drop of a hat. Can I also just say, though, that as I look at this question, I think the language is unhelpful. The language of I'm attracted to men or I'm attracted to women. Because none of us are attracted to a whole gender, right? I'm not called to be attracted to all women in the world, right? We don't marry a gender. You marry, amen, right? You marry a person, an individual, right? Yet we've made this language so binary and so exclusive that, 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 that like orientation has to be... Um, so so divisive or so so sidelining in your life. I, I sat down with with a young man who has grappled with same sex attraction his whole life. We sat down and, and I was I mean it was an incredible privilege. I was the first person he'd ever shared this with in his life. And he explained this to me and he said, "But I love Jesus. There's nothing. That, my sexuality is here, but Christ is here. I, I mean, if it means I'm going to be celibate my whole life, I'm willing to follow Christ and to do this." So I said to him, "So so have you ever been attracted to a woman?" He said, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, there was this time in high school, there was this one person, and, and then there was this other uh, one in our, in our life. He said, you know that you're not called to marry all women. Like, one is enough. <laughs> and, and this language, you know, this language is unhelpful. 
I mean, just, just please unpick this a little bit in your mind. You, you have to think through these things because the language is so polarizing and so exclusive like this. But in reality, it does not play out like this. What do we say to those who are gay? Sorry, sorry, sorry. What do we want to say? To, what? No, let me say this right. What do we say to those who say, but God made me this way? But God made me this way. My answer here is yes and no. The lovely Afrikaans phrase, Yarnia. Yes and no. Yes, God made you. Yes, you are fearfully, you are wonderfully made. Every human being is created in the image of God and bears the image of God. Brilliant. However, no human being is perfect. So too, every human being has been bent out of shape by sin. Sin is not just something we do, but sin is something that shapes us, and it shapes us at a level of our desires as well. It shapes our desires, it shapes our longings, it even shapes and, and forms and deforms our physical bodies. Since the fall in the Garden of Eden, it means that every cell in my body both carries in it the image of God as well as the influence of sin. There is a virus in the system that influences every part of our being. Every single one of us sitting here today has a distorted orientation. Every single one of us has an orientation that has been bent through sin. Created to love one woman selflessly my whole life, my orientation is prone at times to wonder. My orientation is bent and deformed. My orientation is curved at times in on myself, making me a selfish lover rather than a selfless one, meaning at times I lust more than I long to serve my own wife. At times my heart is tempted to stray towards another woman, and I bend that back towards my, my wife. Every one of us has an orientation that has gone out of whack. so my orientation is out of sync with who God has created me. And it might, might look different in someone who's same-sex attracted than it looks like in someone who's, um, who's opposite-sex attracted. It does. But every one of us, this is true for us. It's true for everyone in the room. And the problem is we just don't speak about our brokenness enough. We, we love in this kind of culture that we live in where we, we all look good. We all oh, look, oh, look at it all together. Look at me. Yes, I do. Rubbish. All of us are broken. All of our orientations in some ways, bent. Next question. But then are you asking me, aren't you asking me to go against who I am? Aren't you asking me to go against my identity? And again, I want to say yes and no. And I think this is where our culture really does us a disservice. The message in our culture is anyone who experiences same-sex desires has discovered their most true version of themselves. You've discovered your true, deepest identity. The lie is, in our culture, that your sexual identity is your most fundamental identity, and you have to follow those desires. You must be true to who you are. You have to follow your heart. Be true to yourself. This is in countless scripts on Hollywood, and movies, and novels, and articles, and songs, and TV shows. The, the, the lie that your sexuality is the deepest part of your ideeing. And I simply want to say to you, it's not true. It's rubbish. I am more than just a heterosexual. I hope you know that. I am a human being. My sexuality, as, as important as it is to me, 
is not the most important part of my being. It is fundamental to my identity, but it is a sub part to who I really am. And it is, and here's the catch, it is a temporary one too. You need an identity that is greater and stronger than your sexuality. For most generations on the planet who lived as human beings before us, they found their identities in different places than you and I find our identities. They lived in a different story. Most generations of human beings before us lived in a story where there is a God who, who, uh, who created them. They, they lived as part of a community that they belong to. And so because there's a God who knows me and who made me, and because there's a community that I belong to and who know me, I have an identity that is outside of myself. It's an identity that I discover, that I inherit, that I receive, actually. It's an identity I receive from God, and I live out and express it in my community. But you and I live in a world that says, no, 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 forget, forget God, forget other people. You look inside yourself for your identity. Look inside yourself, find yourself. And so we create these little insecure identities within ourselves that we then have to project to the world and, and, and show the world. And if, and if they're cool enough, they can just, the world can reflect back to us how amazing we are and justify it. And if they don't, we cancel them because they're not affirming or they're affirming of who I am. We crave meaning, so we look to the parts that feel strongest in who we are to define these identities. And in this age where there's a deficit of meaning and a vacuum of identity, it, it seems that because sexuality feels so strong, that's where we place our eggs. That's where we place our, 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 all our weight for our identity. Or can I push back and say that an identity, a primary identity formed on an orientation, a sexual orientation, is problematic in two ways? There's more, but I want to give you just two. Number one, we fail to recognize that our orientation is more fluid than we think. We fail to recognize that our orientation is more fluid than we think. Because this language is so polarizing in our culture, what we fail to recognize is many people experience changes in their orientation over time. One researcher, Dr. Lee, or, no, I don't, sorry, I don't know if she's a doctor, Lisa Diamond, in researching this, who is, herself identifies as a lesbian, She's with the American Psychological Association. She discovered to her own great surprise that sexual feelings are not fixed. Quoting her, people with exclusive, unchanging, same-sex eroticism are actually the exception and not the norm, right? So now if you're going to form an identity, your primary identity, based on something that's so fluid, I want to say you're in, for, you're in for a lot of trouble because you don't have something that's stable from which to live from. This thing is chopping and changing. You're going to be profoundly insecure, and you're not building on something strong enough. The second thing we have here is the categories of homosexuality and heterosexuality are not as rigid as everybody says. This is where our language does not help us. We tend to think of these rigid categories as though someone must either be 100% homosexual or 100% heterosexual. Diamond found this, that around 14% of women and 7% of men reported ex experiencing same-sex attraction. This is, this is uh, heterosexual men. But less than 2% of men and less than 1% of women were exclusively same-sex attracted. Sorry, let me get, uh, I read that all wrong. Diamond found that around 14% of women and 7% of men reported experiencing same-sex attraction, but less than 2% of men and less than 1% of women were exclusively same-sex attracted. Here, here you'll understand more here. Among those who identify as homosexual, 
40% of men and 48% of women reported sexual attraction to the opposite sex in the previous year. Among those who identify as heterosexual, 25% of men and 50% of women reported having at least some same-sex attraction in the previous year. What am I fighting for here? I'm saying, guys, all of our orientations are out of whack. It's not you're in this camp and you, can, you never go there, and, or you're in this camp and you never go there. This is not a way to form an identity. It shouldn't surprise us. Years after the study, Diamond concluded that when we categorize, categorize people into gay or straight, we are in fact we are not in fact, fact cutting we are not in fact cutting nature at its joints. We are kind of imposing some joints on a very messy phenomenon. I want to just say to you, it's way too fluid a category to build a primary identity on. So answering the question, are you asking me to go against who I am? Yes and no. I'm saying no because there is a deeper sense of identity than your sexuality. And your sexuality is too fluid and sub a thing to build a primary identity on. And, and it's not as binary as what our culture would let us believe. No. But I'm also saying yes. Every Christian is called to sexual restraint. Every Christian is called to sexual restraint. To be a Christian is to deny a part of yourself. Gay or straight, we all place some limitations on our sexuality and our sexual desire. To be a follower of Jesus always means, in part, to deny ourselves. So, yes, it's true that choosing a life of celibacy means probably denying more of yourself than, than me, who's heterosexual, married, three kids. Look what Jesus says about this. Mark chapter 10. And Peter began to say, see, we've left everything and we've followed you. Jesus, we've left everything. You, you could read in here, same-sex attracted man or woman. We've left everything and followed you. But Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come of eternal life. Jesus promises that we will be rewarded with what we lay down for him. And I don't only think it means heaven. Jesus seems to say, now, certainly in part, it is in this life. How can this be true? And the answer to that is the local church. The local church. The church is meant to be a place of fulfilling community, of rich and deep friendships. Church is what gives meaning to all that we have laid down because we gain in Christ. Now, whether that be laying down a love for someone because of a life of celibacy, or whether that be a Muslim woman who has rejected her faith in favor of Christ and has been pushed out of her whole community, you should gain in the local church relationships that give meaning and enrich your life. We really have to get this. The church is called to love those who are same-sex attracted and wanting to, to, to live out their sexuality in a way that, that honors Jesus. The church has got to become the kind of life-giving community that someone who is willing to deny the significant part of their lives would receive back a hundredfold now 
in the context of loving, caring, belonging community in their lives. Biblical community should help those who are same-sex attracted to live full lives like Jesus promised. The one tweet I saw that was so encouraging to me was of a same-sex attracted celibate man who was just made godfather of his sixth, um, sixth godchild in his life group. Here's the other side of this coin. In our overly sexualized culture, it's easy to forget that the Bible is not anti-same-sex relationships. The Bible commands same-sex relationships at a level of intimacy that most Christians never reach. Perhaps the percentage of same-sex attracted Uh, people are so high because modern humans have been starved of the kind of biblical friendships that are so intimate and so close and so God-glorifying that we actually, in a sexualized culture, want to put sexuality onto something that is actually the most beautiful, intimate, loving, brotherly or sister relationship, which we are starved of in our modern like-friend culture. We are so busy on our own individual message to be true to myself that we we don't commit to other people. We don't prioritize other people. And in the absence of these kinds of deep, meaningful friendships in a world that is so sexually charged, can you see how we want to just overlay that with sexuality? But meanwhile, perhaps we're starved of these kinds of biblical, glorious friendships which the Bible offers to us, not as a consolation prize to those who never attained romantic love. In Jesus' own words, John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. The reality is that marriage is temporary. In heaven, there is no marriage, so orientation is not an eternal factor to your life. It's a more temporary one. Luke chapter 20, verse 35, Jesus speaking, In the resurrection of the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. The longest, most significant part of your life. Hey, if you're same-sex attracted. The longest, most significant part of your identity is not your sexual orientation. Maybe you get 80 years. Maybe you take your vitamins. Maybe you get 90 years on it. I don't know. This long. If you are a Christ follower, you you are being renewed day by day in the person of Jesus. These little 90 years are dwarfed by all of eternity. You have an identity in Christ that is secure in Him that far, far, far outweighs your current state that you're in right now. And so to say, are you asking me to go against yourself? Well, yes, in a temporary way I am. But when you, when you give in and, 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 you, and you depart from what God is saying, you're actually going against yourself in an eternal way. And so I want to call us as Christ followers. We need to live our right now lives in this cultural moment in light of eternity. A friend of mine recently confessed uh, that two, two, two years ago, she, she, she's a divorced woman and uh, was lonely and this man came along and she was lonely and he was lovely 
and it wasn't long before their relationship became sexual. And she said this. She said, um, she said um, I was lonely, he was lovely, lasted a few weeks, and then I ended it. This is what she said. She said, I ended it because it's just not who I am. In other words, yes, it provided some sort of temporary gratification, but at a core fundamental level, when I remembered who I eternally am in Christ, something of these short-term practices and desires, etc., now was dwarfed and, and by, by who I more primarily am as a human being in Christ. And I realized I was going against something for, far more fundamental to who I was, even in that temporary gratification. And I couldn't do it any longer. Because I belong to Christ. He is the truest part of my identity. Jesus satisfies and fulfills me far more than any human being ever could. And I was denying something even more fundamental in my sexuality in engaging in this relationship. We must land. So although it feels like you're rejecting something so fundamental to who you are, I want, I want to remind you, you are, in Christ, you have a far greater, far stronger eternal identity. And you are denying something far greater when you switch that off in favor of here and now. Guys, we've got a challenge on our hands as the church. We, we, we are called to hold these convictions with clarity that we are to be a people of compassion and empathy. Every one of us at an orientation level is bent. Jesus truly can satisfy us. The church is meant to be the kind of community where someone, whether it be from another religion, whether it be for sexual orientation, denies themselves and walks away from something, that they come into this community and they, re they receive a hundredfold what they have said no to because of the quality of love and belonging and godly friendships that we experience in the family of God. Good stuff. Can we stand together and can we read the final? Can we read together? Article number one of the Heidelberg Catechism. Just as you're standing, if you're here and you're same-sex attracted and maybe your mate invited you in and you came in here, I, I just want to say that as a church, we have definitely, I'm not part of this church, but as the church generally, we have not got this right all the time. That, that there have been hurtful, unhelpful, unchrist-like things that have been done and said, and you may have experienced them in your life. And I'm so sorry as much as it's mine to admit it. But I also want to say to you that you are so much more than your sexuality. You are so much more than your sexual orientation. And Christ and life following him, yes, it involves denying yourself. There is so much more in him to discover. And you won't hear that in our culture that sexualizes everything and makes it the ultimate thing. You can discover it in Christ. And so I'd love to say that this is the kind of church and people where you can live a fulfilled, meaningful life in Christ as you increasingly, day by day by day, become more and more fit for your eternal life with Christ in heaven. Let's read together. What is my only comfort in life and death? Let's 
Let's speak together. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sins with his precious blood and set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his faith. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11. But such, as some of you, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. Amen. Yo, thanks Lee. We're going to head out to tea and be back here at 11. So please be prompt. As you can see, uh, each session is going to be lack of full. So enjoy each other and we'll see you back.